Welcome to Corn Ferry Institute's Women CEOs Speak podcast series. I'm Evelyn Orr, Chief Operating Officer of the Corn Ferry Institute, where I lead research and development for the firm. I was honored to lead the research team that produced the Women CEOs Speak research report, and I'm the host for this series of conversations related to how women made it to CEO, what enabled them, what obstacles they encountered, and how they navigated their careers and contributions to arrive at the top. For today's conversation, we'll be focused on events and influences that impacted the women, possibly from a very early age. Where did these women come from? What happened to them? What was it about their early lives that proved formative? Joining me today is Jane Stevenson. Jane is Vice Chair of Board and CEO Services at Corn Ferry and leads the firm's global CEO succession practice. Jane, along with Stu Crandell, is the executive sponsor for the Corn Ferry Rockefeller Foundation Partnership and Research Project. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, Jane, one of the things that we noticed of the 57 women we interviewed for the Women CEOs Speak research study is how varied these women's backgrounds were. Can you talk a little bit about the diversity that we saw? Yes, we we saw... um just huge diversity. Uh, we had women who came from literally poverty uh, and fighting for survival at a very early age, and women who came from very affluent backgrounds. We had people who came from highly educated backgrounds um, to people who were the first to college in their families. Um, we had situations where they were an only child or the only girl and situations where they were one of a family of all girls. So uh, they had just a, a lot of differences. One of the things that um, was was interesting, though, was that in most of the families, there was someone, whether it was uh, one of their parents or a grandparent, that was a very strong influence on their lives and who really convinced them that they could do anything they set their minds to. There were a lot of common themes that we saw about the types of experiences these women encountered and maybe the the lessons that they gleaned from those experiences. Let's talk a little bit about the work ethic we saw instilled in these women early on when they were girls. What what were some of the things you heard in the interviews? Hmm. Well, most of them had uh, either a strong internal desire to uh, contribute and to make a difference or they had a need to. As we talked about in terms of uh, diversity of backgrounds, you know, some of them lost a parent at an early age. Some of them had divorced parents. Um, some of them had, you know, really, really happy family situations. But in most cases, they early on found a lot of fulfillment in taking on challenges or doing work that really made made a difference and set them apart, frankly, from other people. Uh, because of their their strong work ethic and their desire to contribute. So this this message that you brought up of the strong role model that really instilled in them a sense of possibility that you can do anything, there was an equally powerful message around you can do anything, but you have to put a lot of work into it and don't expect it to come easy, basically. Yeah, I think as one CEO said, you had to put in the work. And um, this is a CEO who gave, as an example, working on their graduate work. And 
they were at uh, an Ivy League school and took a course, and you had eight essays. And she said some of the people uh, prepared for the essay they thought was the most likely. Some of the people prepared a little bit on all of the eight essays and took their chances. And then there were the people like her, and she prepared for all eight essays. So anyone that came, she was going to be ready and she was going to nail it. One of the women mentioned that she had a, a grandfather early on tell her, if your back hurts, pick up a broom, which she took to mean that you don't stop working. You just keep working, but maybe try it from a different angle and go from a different direction um, until you until you're able to get the job done. Um, I think preparing for all eight essays finding new and and unique angles to take on on getting the work done all of those those early lessons clearly carried throughout their lives and throughout their careers yeah they they um they really operated under the axiom of where there's a will there's a way and um they were willing to put in the work as one ceo said you know i did well because i delivered the mail what examples did you see early on of the women getting a sense of ethics or doing the right thing from their parents or people around them. Was that part of the work ethic um, mentality that there was also sort of a responsibility or a, an upright way of doing things? You know, it's it's interesting that you ask that. And one of the things that I was curious about when we started this project was what would come out of it? Because you hear a lot about the imposter syndrome and sort of packaging and, you know, putting a gloss on things that you don't really feel and believe. And uh, we, first of all, didn't see any evidence of the imposter syndrome in any of the women, interestingly. But what was really powerful and very inspirational to me personally was that the women really wanted to do the right thing. And it became apparent even early on in their lives and they had a very clear sense of um, of boundaries. Um, they had a clear sense of wanting to have an impact. And, um, you know, so the work ethic was just one area of that. But there was a lot of authenticity in these women. They were really true to themselves. And I think that that was one of the the key learnings that they had early on. And it, and it came out uh, relative to ethics, but it also came out re- relative to authenticity and and really being willing to be themselves, even if there was a cost to it. Authenticity is a really key thing to discover as a leader, I think, in part because it takes so much energy to not be authentic, right? It That's does. a distraction. If and there's an, if hon- there's an honesty to that, right? That Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes a difference to the people around you. So, Jane, I remember in past conversations, you and I have talked about how not all of these households and families that the women grew up in were especially nurturing. They weren't all incredibly tough love oriented. There was a variety. But one of the common themes was incredibly high expectations that parents and grandparents maybe even set an example of those expectations. And they were often challenging the women to do more or do better or, or achieve their potential in some way. I'm thinking of um, a couple of them, actually, and one of them grew up in a military family, and uh, her dad had a powerful influence in her life, and, and he uh, he just said, you know, you should always do your best. And your best is a very amorphous thing to say, right, to someone. And it led her to do a lot of different things in her life, um, 
that were fear-conquering and courage-inducing. Uh, one that I think of just off the top, and this one really struck me in a powerful way, uh, was figuring out how to be credible in a situation and to make sure that you were able to um, deliver what you needed to deliver. And in this case, uh, this woman was afraid of heights. And in fact, even so much so that she didn't like sleeping on a top bunk bed. Um, but when she joined the army herself, she realized that the one designation that immediately bespoke credibility despite her diminutive stature was to be a jumper and um, that that was the one designation that was visible outside on your, uh, you know, on your outfit. I just thought that was just amazing. And, and it was because she had that expectation of herself that she needed to do whatever it took to be able to contribute at her highest level of uh, of opportunity. Well, I love that example. And I also love how you share it because these high expectations and these achievements weren't for the sake of achieving. It was for the sake of doing something and contributing something bigger than themselves. And so uh, the the way that you broke that example down and, and talked about how in order to build the credibility to deliver what she needed to to contribute to her her team or her area, she needed to to be able to achieve this. That's that's a, a great example. Yeah, another one that was really interesting was a uh, woman CEO who had a single mom, and the mom said, you need to make sure that you're always able to take care of yourself and have that independence. And in that family, that meant being a teacher. In addition to the high expectations, the expectations were not varied according to gender, right? So the, what, what we saw is that the women growing up, if they were in a household of, of brothers and sisters, the girls and the boys were both held to high expectations and expected to contribute, whether it was, you know, chores in a chore jar or um, grades or going to college. There was there was not a separate or distinct treatment of girls from boys. Yeah, many of the women commented that they were never really conscious of being a woman. They just didn't think of themselves in terms of they they really refused to be defined by any label. Most of them, and so. It was part of their orientation to um, to want to win and to want to do well. And any label only was viewed as an excuse, not as an empowering orientation. One of the women I remember talked about her mother redefining what feminine meant or what was feminine um, and, in fact, incorporated ambition into that definition of what it means to be a woman Let's talk a little bit about the kinds of role models that the mothers provided for their daughters. And then I'm I'm also eager to, to talk about the rest of the family in terms of fathers and brothers. But I know that, that some of the women ha- grew up with single moms. Some of the women grew up with moms working outside the home. Some women grew up with moms who were working inside the home. Can you talk a little bit about that the power of the mothers as a role model for these women CEOs? So I think the um, support that their mothers provided them in many cases was a push for them. And they had mothers often who were go-for-it kind of mothers who really wanted something for their daughters 
that perhaps they didn't see as possible for themselves. And they were often proud of uh, what their daughters achieved, and they didn't view it as standing out in a way that made them self-conscious, but were encouraging. Now, that's not all, um, but... Uh, But in many cases, their mother was truly an inspiration and showed them, maybe not in label, but in action, how powerful um, a woman could be in terms of juggling multiple agendas, really pulling people together to achieve a common goal, and um, really doing the hard work that would create outcomes on behalf of the whole family. I remember there were a few families where the mothers and fathers were maybe in less of a traditional setup with regards to earning for the family. So one woman talked about her dad was a farmer, and so he was home more often, and her mother worked outside the home as a teacher. And so seeing sort of the um, the different gender roles that, that played out that way, I think that there were probably a couple of other examples where um, based on need at the time that both parents worked and they ended up having a a dual career household um, at a time when maybe it was more stereotypical to have a woman stay at home. And so they they got to see these these different gender roles play out. Well, and there were a number of cases where women were um, on their own, and in a way, their daughters felt like partners with them in providing for the rest of the family. I I can think of two or three uh, where that was the case. And um, there was almost a feeling of of being the second parent, if you will. One quote that I want to share, which is, I think, pretty inspiring. One of the women CEOs we interviewed said, I would probably have to say my mother was my inspiration. And my mother, had she been born in another generation, might be president of the United States. I mean, she was an incredible go-getter, but was born in 1920. So that wasn't exactly what you did in her generation. You know, we're talking about the legacies we want to leave and and each generation making more and more progress. Um, I want to, at the end, come back to what we can do as parents to foster that in the next generation. But I just found that quote really inspiring. It's a really great it's a really great point and I think both parents have a uh, a strong role to play in different ways. And uh, the fathers were were a powerful voice of you know seeing their daughters as capable of doing anything and not seeing them in a gender biased way. And that had a, a lot of power for a number of the women. They also sometimes found him to be a, a really strong push in a similar way to what we talk about around sponsorship in, you know, sort of the current day organizations. But, um, you know, really saying, no, you you can do better. Don't don't accept second, um, second shrift. You've got the capability and I see you as capable. And so therefore not being willing to accept limitations from other men. There was one father in particular, I remember um, one of the women we interviewed said, that he really encouraged her to use his tools and to play around with car engines on summer break and ended up really um, seeing a lot of himself in her in terms of her propensity and and, um, capability around mechanics and ended up really taking a lead role in encouraging her to consider engineering as a field and, and really insisted that they attend a conference or a forum for women scientists at a local university, which ended up 
transforming in this woman's mind what it meant to be an engineer and to be a woman in engineering. And and that's what she ended up pursuing. So that, I thought that was, I, I love your notion of, you know, fathers as the first sponsor in some ways. And I think it's really true. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a huge opportunity and and there were a number of of women who had the STEM backgrounds and remember about 40% of the women in the 57 had STEM backgrounds and there were a number where their dads said, "You know what? Engineering is just a good fundamental underpinning to have." And it it put them in a in a mode where very early on they then started being one of the only women and getting comfortable in a world of men and being able to um, accomplish things there. What about growing up with brothers? What is it about that comfort level that that is built when girls grow up surrounded by boys? I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I think just gaining a comfort of seeing yourself outside of a label is maybe more important than whether it's girls or boys or what it is. However, the women learned it, and they all learned it differently, sometimes from having brothers around, uh, you know, sort of that tough love, that little bit rougher, um, physically oriented early experiences that you have. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them learned it from their moms and the inspiration that they had in seeing their moms really take a strong role, um, either in front of the scene or behind the scenes, didn't really matter. And some of them learned it from you know their fathers through tough love or through um, just seeing them in a particular way that allowed them to see themselves that way. All of these things came together to open a lens that did not allow them to be limited by labels that have become historical and societal uh, norms. You mentioned earlier uh, with regards to the diversity that some of the women were the first generation to attend and graduate from college. What other trends or themes did you see with regards to women seeking out college, um, deciding what to study, et cetera? You know, going to college was, um, in many cases, a pivotal moment of insight about different opportunities that maybe hadn't even occurred to them before. And so whether they went to a small school or an Ivy League school, really getting into a situation where they started to see that they stood out, that they were natural leaders, and were able to do a lot more than just be viewing it as a social opportunity, let me say. And um, I think that was a pivotal pass-through. In one case, it sounded as though the mother thought it was more important for her daughters to attend college than her sons, knowing that her sons would be employable um, in a lot of circumstances and that for her daughters, um, they needed to, to get the degree. Yeah, in one case, uh, a woman said that neither of her parents had gone to college and both were really hard workers and always had jobs. But there was a limit. There was a there was a ceiling that they encountered. And so they valued education. So were really um, supportive of that as a pass through for her. And uh, her brother didn't go to college. And she was the first one to go. And she viewed it as a sacred trust that she had gotten that opportunity. And it really meant that everything was available to her because that was just how it had been communicated. We know from other research uh, that hardships are a critical learning experience and certainly nothing that you would ever wish on someone, but that there's something to be harvested from from those very difficult lessons. 
And you mentioned earlier that uh, some of the women grew up in poverty. A few of the women in our study were racial ethnic minorities and experienced racism. We had women who experienced the death of a parent or the death of a sibling. There's still a lot of research to be done on resilience and, and how people respond to these types of hardships. Some qualities might already be present in a person that help them cope with these things. But certainly there's a lot of growth and learning and life perspective that, that comes with these types of hardships. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw in these women, what they took away from the, some of those early experiences that translated into their ability to deal with hardships later on in life? I think there were two things that really struck me as common chords. Uh, one was just a way of looking at hardship and defining it differently. As opposed to being a block or a stop, it was a cue to move in a different direction. And never once um, did these women really view anything as being able to dictate to them. So they they somehow learned that when something hard or bad happens to you, it's not about that. It's about what you do with it. And they used it as fuel as opposed to as a stop. The other thing is the ability to reframe what has happened to you and to bounce back from it. There were several women that described very personal situations that were critically wounding to them. And one of them uh, said that a particular experience still haunted her to this to this day. And really coming to a conscious level of saying, is this going to define me or am I going to move on from it? And even if I'm still wounded from it, be resilient about it. And they demonstrated huge, you know, huge resilience to say, you know what? This happened, but I choose not to let it be what my life is about. And um, as one woman said, there is no I can't in the dictionary. It's how can we and figuring out how to move forward and using failure. One saying that came up numerous times was, what's the worst that can happen? To a certain degree, when you have hardship, especially earlier in your life, and you've failed or you've had something that you can't control, you start to think about things as a series of trade-offs. And you even look at it as, can I afford not to do this? Or can I afford not to try this? As opposed to letting it be a block or a stop. It does strike me as you're as you're speaking about this, the extent to which these women's courage and willingness to take risk was really defined by a lot of their early experiences, including their early um, experiences with hardships. Huge. Huge. And what's interesting is that most of them were pretty defined by these situations. So it's not a case of, you know, just sort of stuff it and move on. They They really used it for benefit. And it became a part of who they were. And um, I know for my myself that those have been the most defining times uh, of life. And not being a masochist, you wouldn't choose them, but neither would you ever give them up because they really are the things that fuel for the future. So speaking of the future and future generations, Jane, you and I are both parents, and uh, we want to raise up the next generation of girls and boys, young men and women, uh, to 
achieve their potential and accomplish as much as possible and help solve a lot of the problems we have in our world. When you think about what we learned from the Women CEOs Speak research, how would you translate some of that into parenting tips? Well, I think, first of all, the role of the father for girls is really pivotal. And if girls feel there's a high level of expectation, um, respect, and um, guidance, it has a marked impact on uh, their daughters. And that's just huge. I think as mothers, you know, really representing a level of independence and a level of capability and not being defined by labels is a huge model. I'll never forget, excuse me, having a walk with my daughter, who's now 23, but this was a number of years back. And uh, we were talking about something that she had observed about me. And, and she said, Mom, why did you let this happen? And I thought, wow, you know, our kids, they're watching. So the ability to be resilient, to move forward, to take things on, and to expect that of them is, uh, is really pivotal. And the, and the last thing I'll say, because I know you'll have some great things to add there, Evelyn, is hard things and accountabilities are really important to the future of our kids. And we're not doing them any favors when we don't expect that and that we don't help them to understand the trade-offs that ultimately become guides for them when they become adults. Those are great. I, I think I would just add that um, I have a daughter in high school and my son is is starting middle school next year. And I think the thing that I try to do most is to paint a picture of the roadmap ahead, right? And so what choices are they making today and how might those play out? And at what point will doors be opened or stay open? And at what point might they need to to make some some choices to narrow things down? And constantly being available to deliberate about about those things. Frankly, I've spoken with my daughter about this research and told her what we've learned about STEM and business and finance and, and what types of experiences. And I think she feels really energized and, and motivated by the knowledge and, and knowledge is, is power. So we're bringing things to light that maybe some people take for granted and others, we just need to make them more explicit so that that they can see what they have the potential to do and how they can possibly contribute. Yeah, I think it's such a sacred trust. Uh, My own daughter is at the early stages of her career, uh, just turned 23 this last weekend. And one of the things that this study has contributed in our interaction is to make sure that she doesn't allow herself to be pigeonholed. And early on, people kept telling her to be more and more specific about what she wanted. And we really redefined together what does specific mean? Because maybe specific doesn't mean to be more precise in terms of a narrow definition of what you want to do, but more specific in terms of the potential and the challenge and um, the kind of environment that you want to be in. And that's a very different takeaway. Uh, so I think the the impact of this study in terms of uh, really looking at and being able to see where impact can have an, an influence and open a trajectory and open a mind's eye and to build then those resilience and self-awareness skills that allow us to um, to just transform the ways that we uh, bounce back when things happen because it's a tough world. 
And um, uh, these women were very inspiring in the ways that they learned from hardship, um, learned from challenge, and really refused to be defined in any way that wasn't empowering and able to allow them to contribute and make a difference in the world. Jane, I want to thank you for delving into this topic around early formative experiences that these women CEOs had and illuminating some things that can help those of us who are raising up the next generation of leaders uh, to apply to our, our parenting, our teaching, the skills that we bring to any children and youth and young adults that we encounter. So thank you so much. My pleasure. So again, this has been a series of podcasts related to the Women CEOs Speak research. Uh, We first started out the series taking a deep dive into the research itself and providing a foundation. We spent some time talking in our second podcast about what organizations can do. We addressed what women can do personally. And then we had a few topical conversations around how to deal with sexism in the workplace and what we saw from the women CEOs and how they handled it and overcame it. We uh, talked about mentors and sponsors and what the difference is and how women can best engage those types of relationships to have a bigger and broader contribution. And finally, this conversation about early formative experiences. If you are interested in learning more, please download the report on Women CEOs Speak. You can find it at www.cornferry.com. Thank you for joining us in these series of conversations, and we'll talk soon.